me, guys. No, I, I'm I'm starting to have an anxiety attack because we're starting to like blow all my material that I had prepared. Oh, sorry. Okay. Free talk. Need to get this episode going before I have nothing to say. I'll, I wonder I'll... what that means. Does Matt Smith look like a Daniel Radcliffe that had like a stroke and all of his facial muscles stopped working? No, don't be an idiot. Okay, but he seems like he's his face is hovering somewhere in the uncanny valley. I think you're wrong. I, I noticed all. Okay. I am the watcher. No one in my family listens to the podcast, so I'm safe. Well, and that was all that was all after. Max only takes things that will humiliate me <laughs> pre and post banter and incorporates it into the podcast. Hello, this is Max and Jason watch a movie, and I'm Jason. Uh, actually, I'm Jason. That was Anya. And I'm Max. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to be talking about Last Night in Soho, and here's the cast. Thomas and McKinsey plays the main character, Eloise, or Ellie. Anya Taylor-Joy plays Sandy. Matt Smith plays Jack. Diana Rigg plays Miss Collins. Let's see. Terrence Stamp plays Lindsay. And there's some more important people in here. <laughs> what, what about Michael Ajaho as John? I'm going to, I think his name is probably Michael Ahau. Oh, okay. As John. What about Jesse May Lee? Is she anybody important in the movie? No, she's not. Didn't um, think so. We've got Rita Tushingham, and she plays the really nice grandmother. The Phelps twins make an appearance. They played George and Fred Weasley. Um, and they were probably only in this film because of the practical effect they were used in. And they needed twins to simulate a mirror. Ah, uh, because mirrors are so hard to come by. Well, it, it was a practical effect where somebody in the reflection didn't match the person staring at the mirror. Ah, okay, okay. So. Gotcha. I think those are all the important people. Okay, okay. Rita Tushingham reminds me a lot. I'm looking at her headshot here from IMDb. I think she looks a lot like my cousin Kimberly and a little bit like my mom. A little bit like the women on my mom's side of the family. Anyway. Uh, Actually, I felt like I should have recognized that actress. That I mean, that I've seen her before in something else. And I looked through her um, filmography and I could not find anything that really jumped out. It's not necessarily I haven't seen anything in it, but I feel like that I should know her from somewhere, but I don't. She has that face. That's what I yeah. thought. Did, yeah. did I see her at the corner store today? No. She was in <laughs> Dr. Zivago. Yeah, but believe it or not, I have not seen Dr. Zivago. I haven't either. Neither have I. In what fact, about, what about uh, Diamonds for Breakfast? Nope. Or Straight On Till Morning? Nope. I haven't seen any of these things. Yeah, but I feel like I, I've seen her before, but... But a veteran, and there there are several veterans in this movie. So that yeah, so this movie was released in 2021, correct? Yes, yes. And is um, uh, a story developed by Edgar Wright, the great Edgar Wright, uh, and co-written screenplay by Edgar Wright. Also written by Christy Wilson Carnes. Uh, I don't know anything about her, but I know that some of the scenes are directly from her and like her experiences. So well, yeah, she contributed um, a lot. She's written some um, good stuff. She did some Penny Dreadful work. She wrote 1917, which was a recent yes. World War One novel. Uh, I'm sorry, World War One film. So the kid can write. Yeah, yeah. The kid. <laughs> 
Sorry, Jason, I think I stepped on you. What you were saying? Uh, no, I, I, I was actually going to say just what you said about what she what she had written. So I, I would say it's safe to say that this film is um, specifically about the 60s. I think we're going to discuss and decide if it has more to say about us today or, or you know, some other era. But, but to a certain degree, the film is about the 60s. And I think that's established pretty quickly during the credit scene. Um, and, and I have to take this uh, because um, the... the the, um, the the first shot after the 17 logos of all of the studios that are involved in making this movie uh, is kind of, I believe, a long shot of a, 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 a hallway where we see what we're going to find is the main character come out and she the song begins playing and she begins dancing. Uh, the song is from the 60s and uh, basically the credits take place over uh, her dancing in this and, and, and we see that her apartment is covered in all of this 60 nostalgic 60s material it's established very quickly that that she's enamored with the 60s and the song that is playing is what what's a world without love um, a World Without Love uh, by uh, Peter and Gordon. Uh, a song written by Terrence I don't know. Stamp. Terrence Stamp did not write this song. I'll give you a hint. Top selling songwriter in the history of music. Beethoven. No. Uh, I don't know. Yes, but wrong. Um, uh, hold, on, hold on here. Hold on. I, I've got it. I've got it. Uh, Paul McCartney. Yes. It, the, the, the only number one hit that uh, written by Lennon McCartney for another another artist that that the Beatles nor Paul McCartney ever, ever recorded, or which is also a little trivia note uh, for those out there who have seen and loved the movie The Rock. Welcome to The Rock. With Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage's character, Stanley Goodspeed, is a Beatle maniac. And after he defuses the bomb and he's sitting at home, playing strumming his guitar naked uh, he is listening to this song <laughs> you could have done without that trivia but believe me tomorrow you'll be better well it, you know we benefit deeply from all kinds of knowledge jason any nicholas cage related knowledge is is worth knowing i think you know sure I, I, think, national, I think he's a national treasure i see what you did there anya <laughs> That was good. So no, that was that was pretty nice. That was pretty nice. That was a, a pretty good one. Doop do doop do doop. <laughs> so the, the film is set in the 60s. We get a sense that the film is not set in the 60s. It bounces back and forth between the 60s, but it is about the 60s, and it is it we see the 60s sort of through this uh romanticized the romanticized glasses, I guess, that our hero wears. Is that right? Rose-colored yeah. shades. Yeah, well, we get the sense Ellie is um, pretty inexperienced uh, in the world, but she she loves the 60s. She loves everything about it. She loves the fashion, and she wants to be a fashion designer. And that that has been her goal, but she has basically lived through this, um, the, 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 the lens of looking at 60s culture, both, both the dress and especially the music. She loves, all she listens to is basically 60s music and um she's being raised by her grandmother her mother is deceased and uh her dream has been because because they live in the english countryside so she's not from the big city but her dream is to go to london and and be a fashion designer and we kind of get this snippet during this scene which which but by the i mean i i love the, the opening credits I, I love the use of the song uh i love um the, the dancing. I love how her character is kind of set up without even saying a word. I mean, we already kind of get this sense of, of who this person is. And I also love, by the way, I have to say this, I love opening credits. 
I know that these days the trend is to put all the credits on the back end. Um, I, I actually really like when a, a movie will do this and, and give us title cards of everyone who helped make the film, who star in the film, and, and present it in a creative way. And in this case, in a way that actually is already feeding us some character, uh, ident some identifying character uh, uh, characteristics. Well, I, I, I like it too. Um, and I certainly like it when, when the title sequence and the credit sequence also does some of the work of character development and story development it can be done really well and it can also be done in a really really lazy way but i didn't get the sense that this was a lazy way of doing it what i got from this is that i got some sense of eloise El El is that how you say her name ellie you say ellie ellie i get i get a sense that she longs for this era and has romanticized this era and knows a lot about this era but i also get the sense of edgar wright i think in these in these moments and i don't know if this is right i, I think anya and, and maybe you will know more uh jason uh, and anya but this does seem to also be sort of a uh, the film sort of functions also as a love letter it seems to me of edgar wright to the 60s does did either of you get that yeah when i was reading about the movie um edgar wright did do this project because he has been obsessed with the 60s since he was a young kid because he was born in 1974 and he was making the point that he feels like everyone is obsessed with the decade they were born after and so he was born in the 70s and was constantly asking for anecdotes about the 60s, which he felt like he like couldn't get enough of, right? Well, see, so. that's something that's kind of interesting because I... I, I... I don't exactly see myself in Ellie uh, because I didn't fixate on the same period of the 60s, the same aspects of the 60s as she did. Though I did listen to a lot of the music in part because on long road trips, my dad forbade any modern music. <laughs> and so, so while on my own time, I could listen to the, the great uh, rock and techno babble of the 80s, the uh, electronic revolution. I, I knew everybody from the 60s. And, but, I, but I sort of, uh, I, the music that she listens to, I didn't hear as much. And I think I was more concentrated on mostly American 60s music. And I suppose more of the counterculture as opposed to... Huh? Which is kind of very mid, mid-60s, kind of in between the early British invasion and the the kind of post psychedelic era which I think is what you're talking about yeah and, and she's more, she's more listening to that 65 66 67 kind of music well and and her and her aesthetic is totally different her her 60s aesthetic is totally different from the 60s in my head you know what I mean well, and, and which and, and I've got to back up a little bit I just said British invasion for her it's not a British invasion <laughs> Britain <laughs> So, um, so this is all British, 60s British music, the, the, the London that she's obsessed with, and she is obsessed with London. And specifically in this case, and Anya was just talking about, about Edgar Wright and his experience, but in the experience of the character, she has these stories of her mother and grandmother going to London. And in fact, there's even a scene right, right after the credits where she has a picture of her grandmother and her mother outside of this famous London restaurant. And so, but, you know, I want to go there. And the grandmother says, well, we just took that picture. We couldn't afford to go. And, and it's kind of a little sense that, you know, Ellie has cooked up in her mind the life that her mother had in London. But really, she doesn't know anything about what her mother's experiences were and that there might be something illusory. So, Max, to answer your question, and then and then what Anya said, which I did not know, but it, I think it kind of makes sense. I actually, I, I agree with the love letter idea, but I would also suggest that in writing this screenplay and crafting this movie, 
this movie is about removing blinders about because I, you know almost like if you look at an era that you didn't experience and then you and then you you kind of project onto it what you want to see that had nothing to do with the actual experiences of people that actually lived in that time which Ellie the character in this movie is going to have like that's what this movie is about the movie is about uh, removing blinders and taking away that kind of perspective of you know, I love that era. That, that's when things were great. If only I, in fact, she says this a couple of times, if I could have lived anywhere, I would have wanted to live in London in the 60s, um, which I, I mean, I've learned from Austin Powers was uh, swinging London at this time. And, um, you know, that that, that that was a time where people say that they would want to live. And Ellie wants, wants to say that she, that, that she would have been more at home at that time, in that time. But I think, I think the point of this movie is that that's not really true. And that it's probably not true of any period, um, that she's looking at the 60s through uh, a, a kind of distilled, repackaged. Well, it's curated. It's a curated ver- it, version of... of right. The- through, through all these records that she has. Uh, and and this story about her mother that she has developed in her mind. Now, we should also mention there is a brief moment, several brief moments during these early scenes where she sees her mother in the mirror. And her mother... Not surprised by this. Yeah, her mother's been dead since she was seven. So, but she sees her, and we and and I noticed this the second time I watched it. Grandma knows that, and she asks Ellie, I believe, you know, if she saw if she saw her mother recently. Ellie says no. So you kind of get the sense that Ellie had had once told her grandmother, "We, I, I'm seeing mom," and and Grandma believes it. But then Ellie decides that um, she just doesn't want to bother Grandma with it anymore, or she just wants to keep that experience to herself. And this is this is a pattern with Ellie. Ellie does not let people in on information about what she's experiencing well, throughout the week. Uh, you know, if you've got the shine, it's probably a good idea to keep it to yourself. Well, no, no. And, and, I, and Max, I, no, I, I'm glad you used the word shine because actually, folks, Max is referring to the shine, those, you know, three of you out there that haven't seen it or read the book or whatever. But actually, um, both times that I watched this movie, that's how I tried to watch the narrative through the idea of these aren't necessarily ghosts, but rather just kind of, and I'll use a 60s term, vibes of these things that happen that she is attuned to. I'm not saying the film's not supernatural, but I'm suggesting that these aren't ghosts. Or, the, or that's how I chose to watch it both times that I watched. It. I kind of saw them as, well, I, I saw them as ghosts, but also as like people's memories. Echoes. Yeah, like she was she was watching someone else's memories. Yeah. But I also think that she doesn't tell her grandmother about seeing her mom because her grandmother does mention a time in the past when she got very overwhelmed and it became too much for her, which is why she's worried about Ellie moving to London. But also, I agree with you, Jason, that I think this movie is about how dangerous it can be to romanticize the past. And for her, it becomes literally and physically dangerous. But um, for us, obviously, it's a metaphor about not learning from the past. I I, I think the film is very much a metaphor. I, I, I actually think this film um, does have a point that, that it's trying to make. And yeah, she she definitely she's protected. She protects her grandmother almost all the way through the movie by making up stories about how happy she is in London. And and her grandmother sees through it. It's like, what's wrong, dear? And and Ellie, no, nothing, nothing. Look, 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 look. 
way. And um, she tells, she finally breaks down and tells the truth several times. But you kind of get the sense Ellie at some point became very exhausted at trying to reassure her grandmother. And she just decided it'd be better to just lie. I know I don't see mom anymore. I haven't for a long time. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, I'm getting along with my roommate, even though she's not. And, you know, so, but but anyway, she, she gets a letter accepted to this London School of Fashion, which is what she's been waiting for. And she's very confident. And so a lot, some of these things, I noticed the second time that I watched it when um, grandma is very concerned about her being in London. And Ellie, I think she says, I'm tough. I mean, I'm she's crappy. confident. She's like, I'm not worried about it at all. But then she she learns pretty quickly, not long after she arrives, that this is, she's not in Kansas anymore. Um, I mean, and, I, and she, I, it's kind of almost literal because like she is almost like a dwarf because she is from the, one, from, from the English countryside. She's never been to London. She's never been to the big city. Suddenly she is. And she learns pretty quickly, initially in very small ways, that the people here um, are not like the people that she's used to seeing because there's a taxi driver kind of makes some some uh, appropriate comments to her that really make her uncomfortable. Yeah. Almost immediately after getting to London, she starts getting hit with these very unpleasant experiences, like the sexual harassment of the taxi driver talking about her legs and how he's going to be at the dorms all the time because obviously a bunch of other girls will be there. And then she meets her horrible, terrible roommate, Joe Costa, who is a, seems to be like a narcissist. Um, yes. Yes. Having fights over whose life was worse and who's wearing the better clothes. And then, yeah, and then Ellie ends up sleeping in the common room amongst a party and, and then is late for class. And then, like, the first day she's there, her grandmother calls her and she's already lying about her circumstances and stuff. Well, I, I for, for a moment, I want to dwell. And, and I, you know, I think we're all admirers of Edgar Wright. I want to I want to linger for a moment on the first interaction with Jocasta and how both the first time I watched it, because the first time I watched it, the interaction between Ellie and Jocasta is so natural because initially Jocasta is kind of open and welcoming because she's assessing she's, who is this roommate that I'm going to have and so the first time I watched it and even the second time I watched it I kind of felt like well they're kind of getting along this is kind of working and then and then the moment and you were referring you kind of alluded to Anya that when she you know my um, my mom died and you can kind of see Jocasta like like everything drains out of her because it, Jocasta came into this thinking I'm going to be a great designer because my my mom died or my dad died or whatever. And so I'm special. I'm special. And suddenly she sees that Ellie's mother died when, you know, she was even younger. And Joe Costa kind of, it's not a competition, she says. When she after, says, yeah, she it says is. losing it is competition. She and, says losing someone at a younger age is probably easier than losing someone when you're 15. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but, but then it's, but it's not a competition. And she laughs it off and she laughs it off very effectively. Like, like, okay, well, that bothered her a little bit, but they're still getting along. But then as soon as they come together in a group, every opportunity she has to make Ellie feel bad, she takes it. And she become, and then she, she just, because, she, you know, referring to her as a narcissist, I is totally right. But a lesser director or a lesser film or a lesser screenplay, it would have been immediate. Like the second that they met, it would have been, oh, who are you kind of thing. But but there's this this sizing up that takes place that is just very natural and organic. And it's almost like when we're watching the movie that we're experiencing, you know, meeting this new roommate and seeing it slowly kind of fall apart. 
apart with Ellie, you know, that, that, that um, it just, it's, it's a very organic kind of, of interaction. And I also want to say, because um, Anya, you had said in your, uh, uh, before we started recording, and maybe you want to talk about it now about the name Jocasta and where, where Edgar Wright got that. Oh yeah. Um, apparently Jocasta was going to be Edgar Wright's name if he had been born a girl, but also the, the, the naturalness that you're talking about, I think is one of this film's strongest attributes because the whole time we're following Ellie's journey, I felt like I had experienced what she was experiencing, even though I've never been chased by ghosts through London or seen someone murdered in my bedroom. I just like her experiences and the way she reacted and the way that it was written. I, I was like, I felt like I knew Ellie and like I don't know it just even though it, it's kind of a supernatural movie it was done in such a way that it's still believable I think that's a big strength of the film I think that if if Edgar Wright had tried to take the shortcuts that a lesser film would have it the film wouldn't play as strongly as I think it does yeah so um, no I, I I'm happy that you and Jason have highlighted that kind of realism of the of the way everybody's acting and the way relationships develop and the kind of cattiness and competition that sometimes pops up in the situations that she's in your experience that you you experienced that more recently than jason and i have and i don't know that jason and i necessarily would have experienced that in our college careers in the same way you know but didn't, didn't see any ghosts i i mean i didn't either but anya's in the american south and you can never never tell uh, how is, southern gothic it might be there it is the most haunted city in america every 15 feet there's a skeleton under you how okay so so how can it be the most haunted place in America? It, I mean, how is zero higher than zero someplace else? You know what I mean? Because, Max, because you didn't move the bodies. You just moved the headstones, didn't you? Audience, I hope you got that reference. Uh, I think Jason just channeled Craig Great T. Goodness. Nelson. Uh, is is he even dead? I don't know. <laughs> no, he's not. But no, I think I think that those are all good things. And this kind of naturalistic groundwork is really crucial to ground the rest of the the journey we're going to go on with Ellie. And I just want to say that Thomas and Mackenzie's acting is, I feel like, so understated and just it's so oh, good. She's she's fantastic. Yeah. She's amazing. And can I say something? Can I say something else about the brilliance of her casting? Not only is she a great actress and and just wonderful in this film. I thought I thought Wright picked her also because she sort of has some of that classic. Her face reminds me a lot of the classic lines of uh, British '60s icons. She really reminds me of a British '60s icon, even more so than Anya. Uh, not you, Anya. Obviously, you're a, you you are like every '60s icon ever, Anya. All in one moment um, no problem no problem Anya love uh, what's uh, Anya Taylor Joy even more so than her you know what I mean but like Thomason she has a similar face to oh who is the the major London pop star uh, popish not pop star but like the London icon she well, was they were talking about Scylla Black in this movie okay is that who you're talking yeah. about I'm talking about I can't remember she was sort of a petite person oh, Twiggy. Twiggy yeah Twiggy. Some, yeah some, some she, 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 she fits in that kind of 
that London vibe, I think. And so I, I, I think that Wright picked her also for that 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 appearance. She he also picked her after watching her in the movie Leave No Trace. Like mm-hmm. that was when he decided that she was who he wanted for this role. I haven't seen the movie, but I don't even I don't even I've never even heard of this Leave No Trace business. Jason. I'm I'm not known for this, but I'm going to take a moment and be pretentious. <laughs> you know, Anya, you had mentioned that if, if Edgar Wright had been born a girl, he would have been named Jocasta. Jocasta is the name of the mother and wife of Oedipus and Oedipus Rex. And now I believe I believe Jocasta kills herself, but Oedipus blinds himself. Yeah. And so I took the name Jocasta to be a reference to Oedipus and blindness and a statement that that her character, unlike Ellie, is actually the, the blind one. Because, um, I mean, Ellie worships the 60s. Jocasta doesn't. Jocasta just is into fashion but 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 Ellie is is going to discover um Ellie's going to lose her blindness and this movie is about Ellie's loss of blindness and Jocasta is very much in this kind of world of fashion and well, well I mean she has her own illusions you know, as you said, she's a narcissist. She she um she has this belief about herself that she's special, and she's going to cling to that no matter what, and make Ellie suffer because Ellie threatens that. And so I kind of grabbed uh, gr- uh, uh, grabbed onto that of blindness versus uh, sight, and and Ellie does have a, a, um, a great deal of of sight that is going to occur to her and 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 create a great deal of suffering for her. This is actually a frightening movie. You kind you kind of don't expect it to do to take some of the turns that it does i mean i knew from the preview what the movie was going to do yeah i i didn't know that there was going to that the movie was going to eventually become kind of claustrophobic if you're in ellie's shoes the first time i watched it I was so stressed out from like minute 30 to the end. I was like, you you looked at the counter. (laughs) You knew it was minute 30. Exactly. Well, no, because I was, I was rewatching it today and around 30 minutes is when she first has like uh, the interactions with Sandy and and Jack. And um, then it just gets worse from there. And when she starts to like lose it and lose sleep, I just, the way that that was portrayed and the way she acted and everything else that was going on, I was just like scared and stressed out the whole time and that's a lot because a lot of movies don't affect me in that way and I was well when things take a turn for her when they start to take a turn it does ramp up progressively from there it doesn't there's she doesn't really get a does she get one reprieve I think from her she doesn't okay oh no I mean once things start to go negative her ability to escape it at all just increasingly diminishes and in fact Max I I think you'll um, appreciate this and actually listeners of Max Max and Jason watch a movie will appreciate this because uh, because I was vindicated when we watched uh, and reviewed Bram Stoker's Dracula and uh, and I think I had a, ta- a chance to say then that you know I, I like vampire stories done well and I'm often disappointed I, I always appreciate when it is done well and 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 you know there were things about that movie that are were praiseworthy but there are things that I like about the vampire myth and uh, you guys are probably wondering why I'm even bringing this up there's there's vampiric elements to this story I'm gonna I'm gonna talk one scene in particular Ellie makes a, f- a friend um the only decent person at the um at the um the school of design who ki- who becomes her boyfriend basically and uh he he kind of pursues her he's a really nice guy really wants to get to know her realizes she's having a rough time is trying to convince her that that you know that he means no harm to her and that 
he, he wants good things for her, et cetera, et cetera. And the first time that he asks that he asks her out, and I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but I but I want to talk about this one thing uh, because there's a lot of filmmaking stuff that Edgar Wright does that is worthy of talking about. But he finally he musters up the courage to ask her out, and, and she likes him, no doubt. But um, she refuses him, and the reason she refuses him is because and the, what Edgar Wright does, there's a flash of this memory of Matt Smith's character, and we'll backtrack in a second and talk about how that all, you know, comes into play. But initially, when Ellie starts having these visions of the 60s, where she's kind of transported into these living echoes of what's happening, it's very positive. It's everything that she's always wanted. And so it, it's just brilliant filmmaking that she's being asked out by, by a very genuine young young fella and she likes him but then there's this vision of god i gotta get back to that that's what i want this addictive aspect of it and her connection to the 60s is almost like some kind of vampirism it it, it, it's it's got its at this point because she's dreamed about it her whole life and now she's she's able to finally touch it and she can't turn away from it and she because it makes her so happy and she doesn't realize just how much it's going to just suck out of her well it it goes both ways Uh like the the and in sort of, and this sort of is why I was why I thought of The Shining uh, when I saw it, um, and more the book than say the movie. The, sh- the these let's say there's some kind of supernatural element to the film. The the echoes or the ghosts or whatever it is, they feed on people like Danny Torrance or in this case Ellie, you know. And so these images seem to get these these vignettes that she experiences, and we'll 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 get to that in a minute, audience. But these vignettes of the '60s that she seems connect in connection with gets stronger and stronger over the course of the film. Yeah. And in some way they are in that they, they do seem to be locked in this little feedback loop. The more she goes, the stronger that the more she goes to experience these, these echoes or these ghosts, the stronger they get when they reinforce each other. And then, and then she can't escape them and they start spilling over. But I guess you know, we need to kind of back up that she, she finally, she gets chased out of the dorm because Jocasta and her, friends are just so horrible to her she, she's really stressed out about it and so she rents a place next to a french restaurant um that has a neon sign blinking all the time and it's everything that she wants and there's a um an older woman who runs the place ms alexandra collins and she gives her hard and fast rules no men in the after a certain time or not at all or whatever the rule is and don't uh, don't leave me high and dry don't don't leave you know you know without giving me notice and and ellie's very confident well i'm not gonna do any of that you know i just i just want a place to stay and she ends up playing her records and the first i think it's her first night and there's this wonderful moment where she takes the she takes the sheet and she flips it over herself and then the camera kind of pans away from her and the sheet's like a mile long and suddenly she's she's transported she's walking through the alley yeah a club and yeah and there's and she steps out and there's a there's a movie poster thunderball that, yes Yes, um, uh, James Bond movie with Sean Connery, and you know, and 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 uh, you know, and and it's it's this huge poster, and there's lights all around it, and there's people all over the street, and she's in the '60s. She's exactly where she wants to be. Mm-hmm. She's she's very happy, and uh, this is when she meets these new characters who lived back then that are going to populate her mind. They're essentially going to take over her life for the rest yeah. of the movie. Yeah. 
she walks into this nightclub and Fred and George Weasley ask her if they can take her coat and she's like what coat and she looks in the mirror and Anya Taylor-Joy is staring back at her and this was a practical effect there wasn't a mirror there was just yeah so so you read all that you read up on a, I only read up a little bit and specifically so, so, I mean so you read up about all of it I only wanted to know about the dance scene oh what well, we I, I wanted to know if that was a practical effect and I read it, the list it was a practical effect the camera mm-hmm. was at such an angle that so hold on let's get to the dance scene <laughs> yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead. so you. Anya Taylor-Joy's character walks into this club Scylla Black is singing I don't remember what she's singing and she walks into the in, onto the dance floor and this slimy old man tries to get him to get her to dance with him and she says no and he is rude to her and she goes up to the bar and asks to speak to the owner and the bartender's like he's not here but go talk to Jack and Jack is Matt Smith's character and she goes over there and stares at him and he's like what's up what can I do for you and she says that she wants to be a star and wants to sing and so he kind of asks her I think how's your dancing or something and she's like I'll show you and so she goes onto the dance floor while the band plays and Matt Smith goes out and joins her and as the camera is like circling them or as one of the characters twirls in front of the camera Annie Taylor-Joy is replaced by Thomas and McKenzie and so on and so forth and how they did that was the camera was at an angle that the two girls could duck beneath the camera as the camera moved and it looked like they were in the same place so they, they were all there at the same time. I think I know what song they were playing, though, guys. I, let me cue it up for you. <laughs> that, was, that was not it. <laughs> that was Thunderball, audience. <laughs> Sorry. That was not it. Uh, that was not it. Um, actually, I, I didn't know the song that they were dancing to. It was but... an instrumental song, I think. Yeah, I... I but but as I watched it, I I wondered is that a practical effect? Because actually, this might be a good moment to talk about because I I, I got to bring it up so, at some sometime. Uh, Chung Hoon Chung, the cinematographer. This is one of the most, and I know a lot of people have said this, and uh, to him. Uh, so I read this because this this movie is gorgeously photographed, and I guess that he's been told that, and he said, you know, it was the neon. I had nothing to do with it. Like you know, the the neon just looked really good. Um, but one of the things one of the decisions that that he and Wright or just him I don't know how the decision was made um this film was shot I remember reading somewhere 90 percent film and 10 percent digital okay they use digital photography for a lot of the nighttime scenes so it's kind of a hybrid movie that they they, they um they didn't want to shoot it digital but it made the nighttime scenes look crisper and better. And, and I think the cinema, the cinematography in this movie is, is, is outstanding. And is, you know, I, the word gorgeous absolutely fits how the, 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 the colors, the brightness, the, 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 the and, and the, and the production design has, um, you know, plays a role in that too, you know, with the neon and all of that, all of those elements are outstanding, just absolutely wonderful. And I'm not, I mean, uh, recreating the six, Yes, but I'm not even just talking about that. That I mean, this movie is just beautiful to look at. Since we're here, Edgar Wright is known for 
comedies and i think that sometimes what gets lost in in a lot of discussions about edgar wright is how technically brilliant he is as a director and jason i i, I introduced jason to uh, a couple of edgar wright movies Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz and the comedy in those films is great but so much of the the beats of the uh, so much of the comedy is all in the editing and 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 yes. it's the way he guides your eye through a scene um and 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 sometimes it can be incredibly subtle um and sometimes it can be you know just incredibly bold and right in your face the joke is in your face right but like i didn't quite notice this until i was actually watching the special features on a the edgar wright film that is immediately previous to this which is a film i recommend everybody go and watch we haven't done it yet we probably will get around to more edgar wright films in the future but it's baby driver that film i didn't realize how much the music was playing a role in the 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 film itself the actors are often saying their lines on beats in a song the bullets that that they have in the gunfights will be fired in time with the music and it's not a musical but it's it adds some punch and interest to the film i think that you might not get a lot of it is because baby driver the hero of the film is often listening he's not listening to people in real time he's got like headphones on while he does his his thing but edgar wright is easily one of the most brilliant uh, te technically brilliant filmmakers uh, that that we have uh, and and that he's applying that skill to this horror drama totally 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 agree and and i think that um you know what anya's talking about in terms of the practical effects I, it's kind of an interesting side conversation that we can revisit some other time but when a director tries to solve a technical problem instead of saying well we'll just do that digitally or with a computer graphic yes you can and you can do that well but if you actually as a director try to apply your mind to it like well how can we make this look good um and 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 you spend some time on it you can actually create something that's kind of breathtaking instead of just oh that looked good because i think this um a lot of these sequences with a lot of the mirror stuff that you both talked about with the you know the doubles and this kind of thing uh, um is breathtaking like it's really breathtaking to look at and not just you know like you're not evaluating a, a um how good a computer effect looks how real does that look you're, you're just you're just kind of absorbing the illusion well and, and by not giving is that's what filmmaking is it, it's a magic trick well by not giving the audience that problem to deal with you allow them to stay immersed in the film as an aside one of the things i liked about the second the sorry the star wars sequels seven through what is it nine yeah sorry uh is that they used a lot more sets whereas if you if you look at like episodes one through uh three there's a lot of digital sets and you can sometimes see when the actors aren't married very well to the digital sets you can sometimes the digital sets just aren't as good as like real practical sets this problem also presented itself a lot more in the hobbit trilogy which i like as opposed to the Lord of the Rings. As opposed to Lord of the Rings, by not giving the audience that, oh, well, you know, that's, you don't want to see 
the 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 digital grading uh the color grading of a film so pronounced because they have to make the digital stuff look the same as the practical stuff you don't want to be so bad that you're like god am i am i watching a cartoon you know if i'm going to watch a cartoon i want to watch a cartoon right if i want to see something animated that's one of the things that i do appreciate about what you're saying uh and what you're highlighting that that edgar wright does and i know anya anya likes a good practical effect i do we're introduced to sandy and matt and sandy wants to become this this singer and she's very confident in herself and she believes she can do it and matt is this kind of manager and they have this like whirlwind night they're dancing somebody says something rude to sandy matt not matt jack punches him and he's like i'll take you home i'll see you tomorrow and it's really romantic and i feel like i generally when watching movies can tell when a a man guy dude is slimy and it's gonna be bad and they did did a really good did your man guy dude slimy radar go off here not at first no and i had seen the trailer It Um, it did for me because matt smith's his face sits in the uncanny valley and I just assumed he was going to be bad. I think Matt Smith is an attractive man. So <laughs> you go into the scene and you think that he is going to help her. You know, I, 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 could, I could see how some people might be fooled by, by his Android ways. Listen. <laughs> Matt, Matt Smith is the 11th doctor and was very popular and he, attractive. A lot of women. Absolutely. I I've, and, and you know, he, he was a great doctor as well. In fact, I, I, I had no time for Doctor Who until I saw the episode with the Weeping Angels that he did. He made me cry. There you go. There you go. Uh, the Ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston, actually was my favorite, but but uh, Matt Smith is uh, a pretty important, um, uh, pretty important uh, Doctor in the Doctor. I know that he was one of the more popular Doctors. Yeah, he was. Um, uh, and in fact, um, his his most famous co- uh, companion, uh, Amy Pond, was played by um, I can't think of her name, and I should I should not have brought her up, but uh, Karen. Pardon? Karen. Karen Gellin. Yep. Yep. Nebula. That's that's how she got her start. Yeah. That that's how I I'll, I'll always know her as Amy Pond. Uh, yeah, um, I know I, I agree because that but see what's what's so brilliant about it because actually there is no because the two of them are just locked in in this kind of magnetic dance literal a literal dance but there's something magnetic going on between them I, I I agree but 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 there's kind of this 60s archetype or 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 you know kind of thing going on where the scene plays into even what we think of the 60s like because he's dancing with her and he's he's kind of kind of almost over confident and he's taking a puff on his cigarette as he spins her and he never takes his eyes off her um it, it's it's everything ellie thought the 60s would be and sandy i'm kind of just thinking of this now sandy is how ellie hoped that she would be coming to london looking for her career but of course ellie's wants to be a fashion designer and sandy came to be uh, the next Scylla black and uh and, and in this scene the character of sandy is incredible confident and Jack matches like they seem almost to be made for each other he's confident and we we believe briefly this is an illusion but we believe that he just recognizes this this thing in her this talent that she's she's come to London to conquer the world and he believes that she can do it 
But what we discover later is that he doesn't believe that. He has other ideas that she doesn't know about and that we don't know about. And and Anya, you're right. You know, you see the trailer, but that scene is so well done that when the, the rug, so to speak, is pulled out from under Sandy, it's pulled out from under us too, because we kind of, um, I, I mean, I knew he was going to be kind of villainous, but I thought there might be this kind of progression that maybe something would change him. I didn't necessarily think that this was an act, but this was an act. He was basically, he was basically recruiting her. Yeah. No, the way that the, the scene kind of, the thing that the scene kind of reminds me of is like the ideal meet cute of the sixties, obviously, but also kind of like, it's like when your parents tell you how they met or something and there are these two giant icons in your life and they meet and you're like, okay, this is the perfect moment. And like, and it's all going to work out. And I don't know, that's just kind of what that scene reminded me of almost. And that's why I was like, okay, maybe he's not going to be a bad guy. I don't know. Just the way that they filmed it made it seem, I don't know. Something that he reminds me of that he'll come to remind me of. And he reminds me very much. uh, I'm going to reference an actual uh, criminal case here. He very much reminds me of, I think the guy's name is Paul Snyder, who was the husband, groomer, abuser, user of Dorothy Stratton, who was Peter Bogdanovich's lover for a little while and in one of his famous movies before Paul Snyder killed her in a fit of rage and then killed himself. But he very much used, he's very much in in that situation, what we'll come to find out about Matt Smith is that he seems to look for these attractive women to exploit. I mean, that's what he ends up doing. I mean, he basically traffics, he's a trafficker and he uses his considerable android charms to woo and get these women into situations that they're, they suddenly can't get out of or then they get stuck in. Uh, so that's his MO, but we don't see that right away. It is exactly what you say, Anya, that, that meet cute moment, though with a tinge of danger, I think. Yeah, it's like, if it's exactly like if you were to imagine yourself meeting somebody important in your life like this big moment I don't know um but it isn't until maybe two more forays into the past that we start we see that he doesn't have good plans for her and that he doesn't have plans to manage her um, singing career he has plans to pimp her out to men at bars yes and uh, and that's that's the one of our early signs that things are going I mean that when that starts to happen that's when Ellie's visions or her visits to the past uh, start to get that's when things start to unravel for her as well in her real life yeah absolutely and, absolutely well after her her second visit to the past she st- she dies and cuts her hair to look like Sandy and she goes to a vintage store and she buys a coat that Sandy was wearing and she ends up accidentally going to places that Sandy went and people she starts she starts to see that some of the places in the in the vision are actually in London they just aren't what they were back then and so she starts to see that you know that she actually you know that this is something that actually happened mm-hmm. and um and then it and then it slowly begins to kind of bleed over you know into her life well there's that there's the, that weird thing that you were talking about that like that uh that weird feedback that that vampirism i guess you would say where it's almost like the person she sees in the past is, is almost bleeding through into now because she's that that echo is starting to live through Ellie a little bit because Ellie is incorporating more of of oh gosh I can't remember the character's name sorry uh, Sandy Sandy yes it, it's starting.
starting to incorporate elements of Sandy in the here and now. And and so I, I thought that was really a really neat because as, as she starts to become more and more Sandy, I, I found that to be really horrifying, actually. Something that I really, really liked was that at first, when she's experiencing Sandy's life, you she's not interacting with people or or touching or like when she does try to interact with people from the past, nobody notices or reacts. And as time goes on she starts breaking through that wall somehow and yes. it just makes it so you you as as a viewer still don't understand what exactly is going on well see this is one of the things Ani and I actually had a discussion after we both saw this movie uh, originally and I sort of wish so this what Anya is referring to and she explained it really well but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, it seems that some of Ellie's actions are starting to affect the past and I wondered I, I sort of wanted Edgar Wright to push that further. He doesn't go as far as say some Stephen King stories I've read where somebody will interact with the past and sort of change it or sometimes somebody from the past will, you know, uh, interact with the, the present in, 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 in a way. Um, and I, I kind of, I sort of wanted him to have their interactions be more concrete like there's a moment where ellie accidentally breaks a window in the past or a mirror i think it's a a, a pretty key moment uh, when when ellie when sandy's talking to a detective right yeah um, no she, no i think it's just one of the men that no, it, it's that's a, a lovely name yeah but it's at the end of that sequence that past terrence stamps character is talking to her and is like you're too good for this it's it's during that conversation yeah yeah that's what i thought he tells her to look in the mirror and she says i don't think i can and Ellie is in the mirror and Sandy's refusing to look at her own reflection and Ellie starts freaking out and losing her shit and tries to smash the mirror to get Sandy to look at her because... So, you know, so you just pointed out the past Terrence Stamp uh, uh, character. Uh, I have to, I have to ask, since you've, since you've already said that, and I'm assuming people listening to this have seen the movie, I actually felt the same way Ellie did. Assumed that Terrence Stamp's character was the older Jack. So did I. So did I. I... No, I and I assumed it before Ellie did. Like I, I, I felt that that was the case. And when I began to realize that Ellie felt the same way, I was like, "Well, it's obvious." I take great pride in naming the twists of movies before they happen, and it annoys a lot of people that I watch movies with. And I wasn't able to do that with this movie. No. I thought I knew it was going to happen, and every time a twist happened, I was like, "What the fuck just happened?" Sidebar. Audience, during the podcast, Anya had to take her dog out. But before she did, we had this conversation. It doesn't really have anything to do with the movie, but it's kind of fun. So I'm leaving it in, even though it doesn't really address last night in Soho or any night in Soho. So we did the sidebar. Enjoy. Before you go, I want you guys to think about something. Anya's got to take her dog out real quick, Jason. But I want to level a new topic while we wait for Anya to get back. And Anya can think about this a little bit. You guys know what Edgar Wright's next film is going to be? No. Anya, do you know what Edgar Wright's next film is going to be? Maybe. Ant-Man 3. Nope. But it does have man in the title and it does have a the in the title. What you've got to figure out is what is between the and man and no Googling, Anya. <laughs> the man thing. No, that, no, no, no. That's after man. It's between man and the. The Invisible Man. No, but that's a good guess. That's a good guess, but the it's been redone recently. Bionic Man. I wish he was doing the Bionic Man, but no. The Six Million Dollar Man. No, same guy. <laughs> 
But there was something that guy did in the credits in slow motion that is the word you guys are looking for. Dun, 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 dun. The running Man. That's it. You missed my slow motion. The Doesn't Arnold matter. Schwarzenegger movie? The Running Man. Yes, but... Uh, um... Speaking of Stephen King. Yeah. He said he loved this movie and that he generally doesn't rewatch movies, but there are just too many good things about this movie not to watch it again. Wow. Also, speaking of Stephen King. That's a good book. I've Um, heard so far. Richard Dawson is dead. Running Man cannot be remade. (laughs) But Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't, so we're golden. Schwarzenegger's too old to run. He'll be on one of those, like, uh, walkabouts. So you may not know this. Um, Richard Dawson is kind of, if there's a game show host that is my hero, it's him. Well, here is Sub-Zero. Now, Plane Zero. So where do we leave off in? Oh, Sandy and Ellie were starting to unravel. Well, 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 if we can put the break on for a second. Um, I, like I, I like how we're talking about this because we're jumping around a lot because we're sticking to the theme, which is actually the important thing to talk about. But actually, there is another moment that I want to kind of comment on. It's the last hopeful moment when Jack takes Sandy to audition, not where she wants to audition, but at a lesser place. And there's the, um, she sings uh, downtown. The the full version of uh, Anna Taylor Anya Taylor Joy's uh, downtown is available. Like they recorded the full thing. Okay. The reason I want to linger here for a second is that downtown the song it is which was a British song is kind of one of those songs that for me kind of in fact it might be the song the song from the sixties that kind of captures the the we could say the optimism but I guess I would say the the uh, the nostalgia for this time where you know if, if you're in a bad mood all you need to do is is to go downtown and go shopping and see all your friends and you know it creates the illusion that there's this 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 harmonious society that's knit together perfectly and and if you could only go down there everything would be okay and and that song has always meant that to me because it's it was one of my mom's favorite songs when I was growing up she would always sing it along with it and even at my young age I kind of was able to kind of intuit that she was looking back on that time in her life and thinking about if only I had zigged instead of zagged, maybe my life would be different and this kind of thing. Cause you know, there was a lot of you know, struggles that she had in this kind of thing, but there was a nostalgia. There was this sense that, you know, that was a great time. And if only X hadn't happened, everything would have been okay. You know I mean? I mean, and, and, and even if only Kennedy had not been shot, right? Like there was this sense in the sixties, both, you know, in kind of this macro political level that, if only X hadn't happened, everything would be okay. But also, I think for pe- for people who either lived in that time, or in this case, Ellie, just loves that time. That if only I could have lived then. If only this hadn't happened, everything would have been okay. And that song, Downtown, as an aesthetic choice for that song, and the way that she sings it, which is kind of kind of um, kind of upbeat, but not. It, it's kind of um, almost barely discordant in places that it's almost spooky a little haunting a little haunting and it's kind of foreshadowing i think the kind of disillusionment that is going to end up happening that here's this song you know about downtown in this case london and everything that sandy believes about it in 1965 and of course we know it's 1965 because everyone knows that thunderball came out in 1965 everyone everyone knows that everyone does and uh and then and ellie living now 
know. It's everything that she believes about it. But really, there's these, there's this darkness around the edges. And I think that the performance of the song captures that because, because Sandy thinks that she's just nailed it, that she's going to become a star and Jack kind of is clapping. But it's such- She has nailed it. She did nail it. She did nail it. But what she doesn't understand is that the people that are watching her, they approve of her performance, but they're not assessing it the way she is. She did do a great job. That's not what they see in her. They see something different and what they see is not good. And she doesn't know that. She, like Ellie, is is kind of stumbling into this nightmare existence that she won't really be able to escape from and that she's going to have to make decisions, you know, if if she can, to try to escape from it. I kind of think that that scene is the beginning of Sandy's death because we're seeing Sandy as this ghost throughout the film. And I don't know, since we're talking about it in different areas and jumping around, we realize we think this whole time that Sandy is dead. And then we find out that she's actually still alive and we're not seeing her ghost, but we're seeing everyone else's ghosts. But I think that we are also seeing Sandy's ghost because that person who performed up on that stage and went into that club and met Jack did die. And she died slowly over the time that we see her as Ellie sees her. Yes. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. We don't know that when we're watching it, but that's, that's pretty precisely what's happening. Alex killed Sandy. Yes. No, I I think that that's fair. Uh, And that's one of the things that I found kind of weird. So audience, we're kind of bouncing around uh, a bit, but for for the majority of the movie, we think that Ellie is hanging out with ghosts and for the most part she is but the one person who she's interacting with the most whose presence maybe she feels stronger than anyone else's isn't dead physically but 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 that person had a similar set of dreams and i think that i think you've really nailed it though on you when you say that that she does die in that you know in her time there in the 60s yeah like uh, Sandy was left behind there and someone else came out of the 60s. Well, yeah. it, it, it's it's something very interesting and and we've been kind of we've been kind of moving in this direction in just talking about illusion, the 60s, people's perspective of the 60s, the actual reality of the 60s. I actually for about 80 90% of this movie, I kind of thought, wow, this is brilliant because it's this is really kind of this is not a movie that would have been made even 5 years ago. This is very much a movie that is in Formed by a a kind of hashtag Me Too revisionism, in that now we we do we look at the the sixties, the sexual revolution specifically in the sixties, many of the aspects of it of men empowered to take their pleasures wherever they could. We now look back at that with a little bit of scance or a lot of scance, and this movie that's what this movie is about because because Ellie Ellie sees the sixties the way maybe. Max, you and I would have grown up looking at the 60s. And um, there's been a lot of, of kind of reprocessing of all of that. And so this movie is about Ellie seeing the underside or the, you know, the, 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 the well, that's, I th- behind the curtain. I think that that's absolutely right. And and the film is, is really clever in the way that it delivers that, you call it revisionism, some people might call it historical correction you know that's what revision is yeah 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 yeah. um though sometimes revision is used as as sort of a a smear you know or uh but i mean when you think of that time think about 
the way stewardesses had to dress and how they had to have certain weight requirements. They couldn't be, they couldn't be a certain weight. They couldn't be married. They couldn't have kids. There's a whole lot of stuff that was going on at that time. There was the bunny club of Hugh Hefner and stuff, which, you know, on the surface, it looks playful, but behind the curtain, that's sort of what this all is, is behind the curtain we're seeing. And I know you've got something you want to say. I, I think it's interesting that we're doing this film so soon after we just did another film that was subtly about the 60s in some ways, which was The Limey, and also starred Terrence Stamp, because we also learn in that film that this the idea of the 60s was also illusory, as is everything else in that film. And so I, I like where you and Anya are going with this and kind of talking about how the film is about the illusions we hold and and how there's often a darker set of themes that a lot of times we don't we, we elect not to to examine you were going to say something jason i didn't mean to yeah i i i do think that that's exactly what what this film is trying to do and it and it does it in a very in a very impactful way but also but but also in a very horrifying way that there there are more than a few moments in this movie that, that I kind of had my hand up to my mouth. I was, you know, you know because it was so, so intense that, that there's legitimate, legitimate kind of um, jump scares that are created through editing, but there's, there's, there's psychological terror in this movie. And, and yeah, I, I um, yeah, what I said, it's lifting the curtain, you know, about that culture and the things that kind of, that kind of fueled it and showing a picture of the experiences of the people that actually, that actually lived in that time and um, the nightmares that they had to go through. And for a lot of these scenes, Sandy, we kind of see, you know, you mentioned that she died, you know, kind of, you know, that night when she, um, when she, when basically her dreams were taken from her and she she became what, what he wanted her to be. And, and she did. But Sandy also seems to kind of go through this kind of stoical period where she's really pissed off. She's really annoyed, but she goes through with it. And we never see the point where she kind of flips and kind of takes charge of her own destiny and i mean we never see that happen because it's kind of you know it ends up becoming kind of a surprise to us you know when it finally does happen but you know i i think that that the film is very effective in in, in going through all of that and turning it really into a horror movie oh absolutely no um absolutely now it's been a while I, you guys have seen it a little more recently than i have there are some i i remember some very terrifying horror moments when some of the men who have been terrorizing sandy start to pop up in Ellie's life. I actually am getting a little chills uh, uh, thinking about the images that, that Ellie is confronted with, with these faceless beings, you know, uh, that that she starts uh, seeing. And, and maybe you guys, I can't remember when she starts seeing them, and maybe you guys can tell me when they start popping up. When we first meet them, I do know that I, we think that they're there for one reason, but it turns out they're there for another reason of some kind, you know, you, uh, and when does when does Ellie start seeing them? And when did you when what were you what was your reaction to them? What did you think of these entities? The first time she sees them is uh, the first night that we see her playing at the club that Jack got for her. Okay. And she at first is trying to refuse being a uh, prostitute in this scene. Yeah. And then she uh, Ellie is trying to talk to Sandy, and they're in the bedroom, and Sandy won't wake up and then a faceless man comes out of the bathroom and says something and that's when she first sees them and over like 
time. I don't know if I would say it's a montage, but yes, I think it is. Sandy, what a lovely name! Like they just yeah. again. Every time she looks in the mirror in the bedroom, she's wearing a different outfit, and it's a different man standing at the head of the bed, and none of them have faces. And it's kind of it made me think that Sandy was trying to forget them and trying to forget the experience, and there were so many men taking advantage of her that she couldn't remember their faces, and also their faces weren't as important as what they did to her and what they represented yeah so that's i still think after finishing the movie that they do represent that but they're stuck in in that place and following ellie around for a different reason but then suddenly this is a part that like i think made me the most tense was when she starts seeing them ellie starts seeing them at the school and she sees them at a halloween party oh right she sees them at a halloween party first which is when it's really bad which is when she thinks she sees that's the night she thinks she sees sandy get murdered yes the huge bad why now real i i the reason i the reason i want to stop you is because i don't know the answer to this why does she see sandy being murdered because because that doesn't happen why does she is murdered like she isn't actually murdered but she sandy dies slowly over time and she's murdered by jack and by his actions and by her actions so she she sees a metaphorical vision not what happened i also think she sees what she wants to see she thinks she sees what she sees what she wants to see yeah she sees what she thinks really happened because like what she sees in the 60s she yeah and throughout all of this all of her following sandy around the 60s i think she even with her becoming disillusioned with the 60s she's still in love with sandy like she is trying so hard to break that wall into the past to save sandy i think yeah yeah yeah. and i I did get that sense that she's trying to save sandy she can't and i think that probably she saw sandy getting murdered because that's what she thought had happened and she couldn't probably couldn't accept the fact that sandy became someone else well i have this thought because actually um there was something max um when you were going over all kind of those little 60s institutions you know that uh are kind of outdated now I, i wanted to kind of enhance what you were saying and i don't know if you both noticed this but there were at least two moments uh, after uh, because Ellie gets a job at, at an Irish pub and there are at least two moments where her supervisor you know in getting her back to work says you have a customer not where you been girl you got to get back to work or you know there's any other line that they could have used but instead it's you have a customer mm-hmm. and, and to me that was a very specific dialogue choice that you know um, there, there's somebody you have to service okay and um, which is what Sandy that's what Sandy's entire life was about and so because the the the, the owner of the pub um, Ellie comes in late and there's a scene where Terrence Stamps character I wanted um, to get to this yeah but go, go on yeah Lindsay is downstairs because there's the pub has two two levels and Ellie's having a rough go she she late work late for everything and she comes in and the, the owner uh, I mean she might say where have you been but she says you have a customer she doesn't say get your ass downstairs you know you need to man the bar she says you have a customer you know and i i felt that that was a a specific dialogue choice that almost even though it's just as a you know as a bartender that that um you know ellie 
that the world is still kind of, you know, insisting that Ellie, you know, service people the way Sandy did. Not not in the same way, but in this sense, Ellie thinks that. Yeah. She definitely thinks that that uh that what we keep calling him Terrence Stamp is Jack. I, I think that dialogue choice was actually put there to kind of continue that illusion because at this point in the movie, we do still I I think all three of us still thought that Terrence Stamp was Jack. So Anya, you got something? Oh yeah, just before that interaction was was the worst of like the the gray faceless men and before that she is going through like newspaper archives because she's trying she had had like a crazy episode in class and then she ends up running to a police station to try and convince the police that she saw a murder from the 60s then she goes to the library and is going through the newspaper archives which is when all of these ghosts converge on her and she goes apeshit and almost kills one of her classmates and that's when she ends up chasing a ghost that she thinks is Sandy through an alley and in, ends up getting shoved to the ground by Sandy's ghost and getting knocked out and then waking up and following Lindsay, not Jack, aka Terrence Stamp to the bar, which is when all of this happens. So she's Is that up. how she ends up yeah. covering this pub and Lindsay? Well, that's the pub she works at, but okay. yeah, that's how so, she... So she has some interactions with Lindsay, played by Terrence Stamp, uh, who is who exhibits a lot of these old world kind, not old world, but like old-timey, I guess, kinds of conversational ticks. He speaks to women almost in a paternalistic way. He talks about worrying about the girls, you know, even though he's talking about women. He definitely comes off as creepy. Slimy. Yes, slimy. And so this is this is an interesting choice. But he talks to her and he seems like he, he talks about how she looks familiar to him a few times, right? And this was one of the things that I sort of, this is one of those areas where I kind of wanted Edgar Wright to have pushed the interactions with the past and the present a little harder because I wanted this character, whoever he was, whether he was Jack, because at this point I still, we all think he might be Jack. I wanted him to have maybe seen her in a reflection. You know what I mean? That was sort of, I wanted, I wanted it to, I wanted other people to have seen her in the past you know, in reflections or in, in some way, I thought that kind of, I, I, that might've been neat. It, it's not necessary. It wouldn't necessarily add anything to the film, but I, I, I sort of, there was something that I wanted and I don't know why I kind of wanted more two-way action in the way the past interacts with her and the way she could interact with it. But that, that doesn't, that isn't what happened, but there is not a, a single interaction with uh, Lindsay that isn't, that shouldn't give everyone cause for concern who's interacting with him, you know? Maybe you want her to be able to interact with the past because the whole time the story is happening to her and happening to the audience and she really has no control over what's going on. Yeah. yeah. We, we want her to save Sandy and we want her to be able to do something, but all she can do is experience and react to what's going on until the very end. But that's probably right. That's probably that's probably exactly what it is. Because I mean, I do want her to save Sandy until I have a lot of questions about Sandy. Yeah. Um, so this is when, because um, she firmly believes that Terrence Stamp Lindsay is Jack and she's interrogating him. And as she's trying to prove to the police at this point that he killed this woman that they don't know about. So she's yelling at him and freaking out, soaking wet and recording their conversation and kind of chases him out of the bar. And they have an argument on the street where he gets demolished by this car and just dies. Yeah. Which, which almost happened to her twice in the movie. True. And I think it was a taxi, right? Because mm-hmm. she was almost hit by taxis twice and then he was hit by a taxi? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that's when she finds out that she's made a huge mistake because everyone is like, oh God, Lindsay. Lindsay. <laughs> 
By the way, her supervisor, and I haven't been able to confirm this because uh, I, I haven't been able to read. I, I, I tried to find on YouTube scenes with the, the bartender, the bar owner. Mm -hmm. I believe that the um, the owner of the bar, the, the older lady that owns the bar, was a model from the 60s, an English model from the 60s, who played Dink in Goldfinger, the girl that uh, is giving Bond a massage in the early scenes at the Miami Beach Hotel. Okay. And she also uh, plays in the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Uh, so she's she's someone that I've seen a lot in my life on the big screen. And this was her last movie. Oh, wow. She died right afterwards. Is that Margaret Nolan? Yep, yep. If yeah. You, if you check out her filmography, she, she was um, in a lot of films at that time, in bit roles. But I mean, uh, but she was someone that, like, I know who she was. I, I, I remember her role. So, but I didn't recognize her. It was not until even it was only after watching this movie for the second time that I looked it up and found out who she was. I never recognized. She was in Goldfinger. That's pretty cool. Yep. Now, Anya, you sent me a little bit of trivia about Terrence Stamp's opinion of the bar they were shooting at. Yeah. I thought it was pretty funny. So I, I, why don't you tell us what Terrence Stamp thought of the location? Okay. So there's a specific scene when she's chasing Terrence Stamp out of the bar. The scene follows them up these stairs and he says... These stairs aren't fit for the movies. And the bar actually made a plaque that said, these stairs are no good. And then it says, said by Terrence, Terrence Stamp, and then put it by the oh. stairs. <laughs> now we got to go to that bar. I know, just um, for the plaque. That's funny. But, but so Terrence, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, This scene, when she realizes she's made a mistake, that's not Jack. That's when she decides, I'm going to call my grandmother. This has gotten out of hand. Which kind of brings us to the end of the, the very last act of the movie and her story of boyfriend at this point john has been running around all of london trying to find her because he's really worried because she almost killed a classmate and was kind of having a nervous breakdown in the library and she's like you have to take me to my apartment and i need to go home so and he fully believes her at this point which is awesome but then he takes her back to the apartment where alexandra collins is and she ellie is explaining to alexandra that she knows she says she wouldn't just run out and she knows that she's Said she was going to be a good tenant but something really bad is happening and Alexandra is like it's alright it's alright just drink your tea and that's when all the shit hits the fan because okay. it's just not very good tea <laughs> and there's drugs in it which I believe that Sandy had had a conversation with Jack earlier in the movie when she told her her real name mm -hmm. and um, watching it the second time this is really interesting we have an opportunity to see what's going on before Ellie does because she looks down at the mail and it says yeah alexandra collins but the first time i watched it i, I didn't notice that i noticed it i watched it that i noticed that and it's so cool that we are given a chance to get ahead of Ellie. Well, we're given so many chances because there's the first scene where he says, what's Sandy short for? And she says, Alexandra. And then there's all of those conversations in the bar where they're like, what's your name? And she says, Alex. And then she says, Alexandra. And then she says, Sandy. And then she's, and then we know the whole time that the woman's name that Ellie is renting that place from is Alexandra also. So like we're given the pieces. But it's nice. It is nice when, when, when we're going to get hit with a twist and this film certainly gives us a twist ending. It's it's nice when there's enough that you could have figured it out and it doesn't feel like you're getting cheated. Mm -hmm. the, twist is, the twist is very clever. It is. And, 
And when the clues have been left, I don't mind a twist ending. Sometimes, sometimes you get like the twist ending and you're like, oh, go fuck yourself, director. You know, you, you didn't earn this. This was earned and it made sense. It does. But Alexandra has been approached by the cops. And they're like, there was a young woman who came by earlier. She was talking about this, this murdered lady, Sandy. And Alexandra realizes she's in deep shit because all of those men that have been chasing Ellie around are all of Alexandra, a.k.a. Sandy's murder victims. Yes, yes. And so that's, that's the big reveal that Sandy maybe didn't physically... Alexandra didn't, didn't make it through the 60s. Sandy came out of the 60s. Oh, Alexandra came out of the 60s. Oh, sorry. Alexandra. Sandy didn't make it through the 60s. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I inverted our con, uh, our person. But You were almost so clever. Almost. But, and, and so we sort of get the sense that the murder victims are asking for some kind of help from Ellie. Ellie. Oh, before we go any farther, before I have to, to, to shoot you with my wolf or PPK... <laughs> We have to talk about who plays Alexandra Collins. Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg, in her, also in her last film. She died this, before it came out. This film was dedicated to her. Yes. Diana Rigg, who is probably most famous for being in the Avengers television show. In the, she, she was very famous in England as an actress. Mm -hmm. But James Bond fans know her as Mrs. James Bond. Um, she is Every true Bond fan knows she is one of the top two best James Bond uh, female lead characters in the entire series. Um, she played in On Her Majesty's Secret Service opposite of George Lazenby and carried him through the whole movie. This is her last role in which she is amazing. She's, she's wonderful in this. She's very good. I'm done. I'm done. I got that out of the way. <laughs> she was great. But going back to us wanting the, the past and the future and the present to like coalesce while... Sandy Alexandra kind of tells Ellie this is what's going to happen you found this out and I'm going to burn the house down basically and going to kill you sorry oh, just, just just lay back and just close your eyes yeah oh, and don't fuss dearie oh that's 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 all great and her boyfriend John comes in and tries to save her where he gets stabbed in the stomach and somehow they end up in the bedroom where all of this started and all of this happened and everything's on fire and I think Ellie tries to still tries tries to save Sandy at the very end and Alexandra go save the boy yeah and doesn't Alexandra see the ghosts at the last minute yes yeah she somehow sees them also and she this is when I I'm not going I'm not going to go to prison yeah she, she you go save the boy I, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself here because actually there is something that I now want to reveal Anya, I hinted it to you uh, mm. beforehand when uh, Max was getting his uh, lightweight beer. The first time I watched this, as well executed as well executed as it is, I hated the twist. Did you really? I hated it. Uh, my reaction was, uh, I was like Hannibal Lecter. No, you were fine. You had established courtesy, and like I, I, I really was plugged into the movie as the narrative that Ellie had that, that that Sandy had been murdered by Jack and that all of all of this supernatural material whether it was ghosts or whether it was shining as as we've established or a vibe or an echo whatever it was 
was, all this happened because of what happened to Sandy. And when suddenly, when we have this this um, 70s horror film twist, I was really plugged into the theme. And when suddenly Sandy or Alex became this murderer who I could forgive for killing all of these men. But then when she was even going to kill Ellie just to save herself, I was like, well, I've lost all sympathy for her because, you know, I could get killing all those guys. They had it coming. Ellie didn't do anything. And in fact, Ellie even says, I won't tell anyone. And we believe Ellie. Yeah, I think Ellie would have, yeah. For all this way, we know she's telling the truth. And yet she's still going to kill her. I I felt like, you know, that, that's not right. She She's a villain. She's well, Villain. The first time I watched it, I walked away from the movie feeling fairly positive. Fairly positive. I still liked the movie, but I felt like that the twist, though well executed, because I didn't see it coming, was cheap. I felt like that it was um, it was burnt offerings, which is a great horror movie, by the way, but with uh, Oliver Reed. But that it was just it was just a twist to scare you or to thrill you or to take your breath away, and I felt like that it hurt the thematic material of the movie hmm. then i watched it again and i realized that it can be both things you can have that thematic material and you can also have the payoff because i actually i thought about alex and i thought about how i was being judgmental of her and then i thought about how well when i was younger i wasn't judgmental of dirty harry i wasn't judgmental of uh you know you know a lot of these other characters who are rather vengeful and righteously so because they were wrong and i and i and i kind of i kind of had to i, I had to think about it i had to think about it my initial reaction i, I was very disappointed with the ending the first time i watched it not the second time i i i came around and uh, because, you know, I, I, I um, maybe I allowed myself to maybe I invited myself more to in, to inhabit the film with the characters on the second go around, because instead of um, and, and so listener Anya and I were talking about this before, before we started actually having the conversation about the movie, about how when you watch a movie for the first time, you're, you're going on a ride, you're having this experience with these characters and your reactions are your own. Then you get to go back and when you watch it a second time, you can you can actually pass judgment on yourself. You can assess yourself. You can assess your own um, presuppositions, your own blindnesses, right? Which is the theme of the movie. So the second time I kind of realized that, well, you know, maybe I brought my own blindnesses into it with me. And so maybe maybe the film on the second or third or fourth or fifth viewing still ha you know will continue to have things to say, which is the mark of a great movie. It, it, it's so well done. I, I mean, um, when I first watched it, I was kind of taken aback at the twist. But watching it the second time and seeing Diana Rigg in those scenes, it, it's 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 so masterfully done. It, 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 it it's it's a blueprint for how a scene like that should be acted and shot and blocked and. It's just perfect. Yeah, the the twist ending, it is so well done, but it also is kind of a punch to the gut because we are all Ellie and we're all rooting for Sandy and then to find out that she is willing to, that she has changed so much and that everything that Ellie went through didn't change anything. I could see that it, it could be hard to accept that as, as the twist, that it just, she she isn't the person that we've been following this whole movie. She's well, doesn't that go though with, so I, I, I can see your 
both both your reaction, Jason, and how how that would throw. It makes Sandy so. What happens? The twist makes Sandy so morally complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. it's not it's not an easy thing to root for her anymore. Right. Which sucks because I fell in love with the character. Yeah. You just want to save her. Yes. Yeah. But being willing to kill Ellie, that was the line. Like, how could you do that? It's so selfish. And everything else that she did was almost, could almost be considered self-defense or justice. Yeah. But what did Ellie ever do to her? Yeah, no, no. And so, but doesn't that also go back to what you guys are saying, though, uh, about how the film is a metaphor for our relationship with the past. Yeah, Ellie can't save Sandy because you can't you can't change the past. You can't you, you can't right. you can't go back. That there's nothing that Ellie could have done. There's nothing that she can do now. Those decisions have been made, and 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 Ellie's sort of been given a, a maybe not the privilege privilege isn't the right word, but she's she's been granted uh, through her effort and and uh, and her insights a more full view of the past and you know sandy isn't sandy's definitely a victim but she's also somebody who's been scarred and changed by the past and and so for what you guys have said it made me think a lot about like what happens at the end of the film and and it sort of makes a lot of sense in that vision that that edgar wright is trying to get us to see the past a little more honestly and anyway i i think that i think that it can work both ways but i can also because i felt the same way you guys did oh god what are you doing sandy because you you want some recognition and affection between the two of them at the end you do which you do get go say Bit, yeah, I save the boy. But I think where I finally came down was okay. The thematic material is real, and the way that we're all three of us are engaging with it is, is totally correct. But this is also a horror film. It is, and and I think that I marvel at the fact that it is able to multitask here and do both. And I don't think that I the first time through I I didn't appreciate that. Second well, time I did. Well, this is something that Edgar Wright has done almost since the beginning of his career. Folks, Shaun of the Dead is a splendid comedy. It is also a great zombie movie. Hot Fuzz is a brilliant send-up of the 1980s, 1990s buddy cop film. It is also a great buddy cop film, you know, and, and that is that is his gift, really. And, and he is really good at multitasking in that way. And in part, it helps that he loves all the genres that he's playing around in. So what's interesting, in spite of what I said, because I was so into the thematic part of it, and I still am, still am, but because he chose to go full-on horror movie at the end, I, I actually now, wish the last scene would have been a little bit more ambiguous oh uh, because, because, okay, so the so the last scene, so Alex slash Sandy dies in the fire, and then we fast forward to for real this time. Uh, yeah, and and um, so we fast forward, and now Ellie is a, a top designer, and she's having all of her designs modeled. And I I I am um, I mean the ending is kind of ambiguous. I wish it was a little bit le- uh, a little bit darker. Okay, uh, it's almost too happy. Uh, so I'll, I'll run this by. So so folks, what happens is is that. After the show, because her, her grandmother comes to the show and, and her boyfriend's sitting with her grandmother and everyone's together. And then she goes back into the into the back room where they're getting the models ready. And even Jocasta applauds her like it's, you know, I mean, it's almost, you know, the end of a feel good 80s movie, you know, where, you know, where the the uh, uh, the underdog, you know, uh, suddenly is accepted by everybody. And she sees her mother in the mirror and, you know, and she gets that. And then the last 
last scene that we get is we see Sandy appears in the mirror. And for a moment, Ellie looks kind of scared. I don't know if you guys noticed that. I didn't notice it the first time. I did the second time. And the last visual we see is, I think Sandy either blows her a kiss or touches the mirror with her finger. They like, I think they touched. Yeah. And then we, the and then we cut to the credits. Now I got to tell you, the part of me that grew up with 70s horror films with uh, disturbing endings, I would have liked to see something else. I would have liked to see some kind of some kind of suggestion, like the end of Carrie. I I, I wondered if you were yeah, going to yeah. go there. I wondered if you were going to go there. Yeah, like some sense that maybe Ellie's nightmare is not over. Yeah, I I might be wrong about that. Maybe that would have ruined the movie. But part of me felt like that the ending was just a little too tidy. I liked it. Okay. It felt <laughs> like felt like Sandy was at peace and had and was acknowledging Ellie for what she did for her yeah i i I see that i you know i didn't i didn't leave i didn't in the movie thinking that they had changed anything honestly we didn't change anything well like i didn't leave the movie wishing that that they would have changed oh oh, oh, okay yeah 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 all right i i see that i i kind of feel like that um you know maybe i'm being a little too playful But I, I kind of feel like that, oh, I'll make this defense. Since you went full on horror and you had that switcheroo that was so well executed, we all agree on, why not go the extra mile and leave us unnerved before the credits? I mean, no, I mean, I don't think that that's outside of something that Edgar Wright would want to do, but uh, yeah, I, I would have been fine with that as well. It's I not think a bad, it's not a bad full on carry with the hands shooting up out of the grave at the end might have been a bit much, but this was another one one of those moments where I sort of was, was where I was sort of wishing that there had been more of Ellie bleeding through into the past like I I, I kept wanting in this moment uh, before you know the before the conflagration that takes Sandy away um, I sort of wanted Sandy to make some acknowledgement of seeing Ellie for a lot of her life to to, to heighten the weirdness of all of the because there, there's, there's things that happen to Ellie in the film some of the things that I think happened to Sandy like she Ellie wakes up with a hickey, I think, doesn't she? Yeah. And so yes, that's right. Yeah. And so there's these there's these ways in which the past is affecting her, and maybe it could just be the shine manifesting these things, you know, somehow duplicating these these incidences. But but so I kind of like that was just one of those moments, and it's a small quibble, audience. I'm not. That's not a knock on the film but it's just one of those things like, oh wouldn't it have been cool if 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 sandy had said something like you know something about you've been trying to save me my whole life and you know it would have been it would have been neat to i think the thing that i wanted was for Sa- sandy or someone to acknowledge how much ellie was trying to save sandy because it doesn't ever get really rewarded and you know sometimes decent actions don't get rewarded so oh, but, but but i mean it, to, to return to the thematic part of it yeah. is rewarded that ellie and i think that we probably should close on this ellie mines from the 60s the only things that she should mine which is the fashion yeah. she uses it for inspiration not as a model you know i, I, I i'm going to use the styles but i'm not going but i will no longer endorse the lifestyle i will no longer endorse the kinds of things that the culture allowed at that time and we see that we see we see her styles on these very contemporary models and which i i think is also kind of a statement about you know in just a couple shots of the 60s are now kind of gone um there's still it's still an inspiration but but it's now where it needs to be it's in the past and and ellie can now assess it 
and, and mine it for the gems that are worthy and can throw away the bits of coal or whatever, however, whatever analogy you want to use that, that need to be, you know, kind of designated for the dustbin of history. Like, I, I think this is a very strong thematic movie and it, and it's very well done in that way. It kind of, but it also kind of doubles as a very effective psychological horror movie. So given that we three seem to think that there's quite a lot of good things going on here, why didn't it do better? Well, it was pushed back. It was supposed to come out. I think it was supposed to come out in 2019. And I'm pretty sure it had a theatrical release. Okay. Yes. In 2021. And it wasn't streaming. So very few people at the time were going to go see movies. I don't know how well horror movies do generally. um, But it just wasn't a good time for a theatrical release. Okay. I think that's why it didn't do so good. Yeah, I, I, I saw that there was like mixed critical review. I, I didn't bother reading any of the critical reviews. I, I, I probably should have now that I think about it, but um, just to see what the mixed takes were. As a, as a huge Edgar Wright fan, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm not necessarily... Well, it's got great ratings. Okay. I, just, I think that the it didn't do well at the box office because of the time that it came out. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, hopefully it will... Uh, uh, it will continue to gain a following and uh, uh, it, bear, it bears repeated watching. Absolutely. No, I, I think it's a thoughtful uh, film uh, with, well, let's, let's do the verdicts, I guess, guys, since we're here. Okay. The verdict. So audience, we've all talked a little bit about some of the, 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 mild criticisms we have of the film but I'll say this and this will just be what I, I have to say about the film my verdict is if you like horror films if you like thoughtful horror films if you like technical technically perfect films you can almost never go wrong with Edgar Wright and I think that that's the case here as well uh, this is a, a superb horror film you'll want to watch it again and it, it oh it does what I think a great ghost story should do and it creeps you out and I and that's my verdict Jason uh, I, I would concur. Um, it, it- for me, it did take two viewings. I loved this film the first time I watched it with some reservations. Reservations led away on the second viewing. This is this is a wonderfully made film, superbly acted and directed, beautifully shot. It's one of the most beautiful movies that you will see in a long, uh, going back years. I, I, I just think it's just beautiful to look at with um, wonderfully clever, magical, as we have said, practical effects. It's also a very thoughtful film. Uh, everything is done in a, in a very smart, way and it's also damn scary uh which i also like to see and that doesn't happen very and genuinely so not not in a cheap way i think this is a great a genuinely great film that i would recommend to to all thoughtful watchers of movies uh to watch it not once but twice and and maybe more times because there's um uh there's a lot in this movie to absorb and appreciate yeah i agree with both of you i generally don't have any complaints about this film and it was i think the first film in a long time that made me physically uncomfortable watching it but it was beautifully shot and it made me nostalgic for people that don't even exist and it's just a beautiful movie i agree and so that's the that's the 
the verdict on I, last night in Soho. There's one more uh, one more thing that I that I did learn about the movie that we haven't mentioned. There's a song called Last Night in Soho, and Quentin Tarantino is friends with Edgar Wright, and he had mentioned to Edgar Wright that this song was uh, actually somebody else as well that the song was the perfect exit music for a movie because Last Night in Soho was not originally the title of the film, and it's only because Edgar Wright took Quentin. Tarantino's advice and used it as the closing credits that the film has that name. It originally had a different I can't remember the I can't remember the name was. Um, however, I don't particularly like the that song in the ending credits. I think that we needed something more uh, more haunting, something some weird 60s song would have been better. Well, it's funny that you bring up this song because the, ever since I've watched the movie, I've been kind of having the tune that my brain thinks is last night in Soho playing in my head, but it's really one night in Bangkok that's been playing in my head and I just keep inserting last night in Soho in that one night in Bangkok chorus and I, I can't make it stop and so this is where my brain is at right now yeah uh, and uh play one night in Bangkok as the the end of this episode yeah I, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to uh, uh, but yeah, and this is not Edgar Wright's fault, you know, so it's just, I don't, my brain works strange and, uh, and, and this is where we're at. So guys, what are we doing next week? Oh, I know. You should. We're, we're going to, we're going to tackle an, another series and we're going to be tackling Dirty Harry, the Dirty Harry series, starting with the first one. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing next week. If you like what we're doing here, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Give us a thumbs up and a positive rating. It helps people find us. You can you can only like us on Apple Podcasts because I haven't quite figured out how to get our podcast on other podcatchers, but I'll work on that. You can follow me on Twitter at The Supper Test. You can reach out to me at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. Jason, oh, wait, you don't have any social media, so we can skip right on by that. Anya, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at ons underscore solo you can find me at twitter uh, anya underscore driffle and you can find the podcast on instagram at max and jason watch a movie so find us on all those things smash that like button give us a positive review share us with your friends and we'll see you guys next week bye bye goodbye my grandpa died a few years ago and i'm at the funeral talking to my sister and talking to my my other family and her son comes up and says it's crap. We're gonna get back. And my sister says, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Walking Dead. They get back up." <laughs> and, How come uh, you yeah. remember small little texts from Jason, but not names of my friends? <laughs> Last night in Soho, and the- <laughs> and on that note, guys, I'm gonna go. Good night. We said some some deep things.